I couldn't have wished for a better life. I've been extremely fortunate. I'll tell that to, I say that to anybody. I mean it with total sincerity. I mean, Formula One for many people and must be a wonderful opportunity in which to participate. There's no one can relax if you're perched, when you perch someone near the top. And for those who are trying to get back up there, we can't relax either. So it's a very demanding, taxing sport in many ways, but it's very worthwhile to the spirit and eventually to the pocket if you get it right. Very sad news broke over the weekend that Sir Frank Williams has died. And who better to pay a tribute to that man than the 1996 world champion, our very own Damon Hill, who of course won that title in a Williams. Damon, lovely to have you with us, albeit briefly today. Your memories of Frank. You say who better to talk about Frank, but actually I was one of so many people who Frank played an important part in uh, their careers. Obviously, the entire Williams team. I saw a a tribute from Dickie Stanford. Obviously, he was one of the team managers back in the day and and worked with Frank right from the very early days. And there'll be so many people whose lives were touched by by his organisation, his determination to succeed and his love of motor racing because everything at Williams was geared towards producing a race-winning car. And no expense was wasted on frivolity. You know, there was, if, if, if you say to Frank, we're gonna, we've got a great idea for a launch, <laughs> just go, how much would it cost? And that could go on another 50 laps of a car testing at Estoril. So yeah, lots and lots of people's lives uh, were positively affected by his amazing energy and, and dedication to producing fantastic racing cars. And Damon, something that I think and feel is unique to Sir Frank and the whole Williams family is this sense of a family effort. You know, we're talking Ginny paying bills that they couldn't afford. You know, you, you hear the, the stories about going into the, the telephone box because the phone had been disconnected. You know, this is a family that really pulled together and came through to be hugely successful. Do you ever think we'll see something like that again in Formula One? Well, I know I don't think it can happen anymore, but it was more possible back then than it is now. And uh, so he was a founder. He, he was motivated by, uh, to call him an amateur sounds like an in- insult, but an amateur really means someone who does it for the love of it. And he would go through hell and pain and poverty and anxiety and stress, as did Ginny, the whole family. They went through all the hard times to get to where they were. And when they got to where they were, suddenly they were surrounded by people who wanted to help and want to be part of the show. So they were quite protective of Team Willie, as it was called by them. It was a family story, and it was very much motivated by this slightly obsessed man called Frank Williams. How would you describe your relationship with him and how did it evolve from the first time you met him? I would say I was slightly in awe of him because clearly when I was on the way up, uh, they were a dominant world beating team. And so, you know, they were right up there. And if you had any hopes and desires to be a racing driver and win Grand Prix, then to be with Williams was was about the ultimate. You know, there was them and, and McLaren and all these these guys were... Uh, Ron and, and Frank were, were almost godlike people. So when I when I first went to see Frank, it was about the test drive. I got the Patrick. I think I I, I found it easier to chat with Patrick because I could talk uh, springs and dampers. Typical men, you know, we could avoid the kind of tricky emotional 
content by talking about inanimate objects um, together. But Frank what was quite austere. He didn't give much away. It wasn't like you could get into a chat like we're doing now with Frank. You had to be talking about something relevant. So I was quite in awe of, of him. I think actually anyone who had the pleasure of meeting him was in awe of him. I totally agree with that. Um, not least because of this tenacity and determination that he showed after the accident. I mean, to give listeners some idea, Damon, of just how tough that was, he, he's been living and functioning incredibly well considering the impact of his injuries back in 1986 and, and was able to achieve such success, yet inhibited by these physical injuries. No, he was a total inspiration to, to anybody who's had any kind of setback because he absolutely refused to feed off any pity or sympathy. He wasn't interested in that. He wanted to, he saw it as a challenge. And so he was very disciplined uh, as he was before his accident. You know, he was a very keen athlete, didn't drink, no alcohol, no you know stimulants. He just drank tea. And, uh, you know, so when he had his accident, he, he basically applied all of that discipline to, to keeping himself in, in shape for a, a tetraplegic. And Damon, could you have a laugh with Frank? I mean, in the years since you stopped driving for him, have you ever had a laugh about the way your Williams career ended? Did you ever talk about it? Did you? Did he ever explain how it came about? Yeah, I, didn't, I don't think I had a uh, particularly uh, a laugh about the way it ended. I mean, I think it was it was shrouded in mystery and there was there's, there's various different angles as to how you interpret it. But I think he did... Well, the way he explained it to me was when he phoned up and said, listen, I've got to do what's right for the team. And I'm very sorry, that means you're, you're not going to be retained for next year. Um, and what can you say? You know, you knew his his primary focus and concern was the future of the team. And if if I didn't play a part in that strategy, then then that's that. And uh, so there's no, no, never any hard feelings. And as far as laughs go, I mean, we had we had some great times. Some really, he was a very cheeky person. I think Mark uh, Hughes did his obituary on him and and referred to him as, as mischievous and cunning and uh, cheeky. You know, he was all those things. He was a charmer as well. He could brilliantly, he could charm people into giving him what he wanted. They they would go out of a meeting feeling like it, where they've had a great time and then realise later that he's he's got the upper hand on the deal. So he, he could turn on the charm. So we did have some chuckles and probably the, the most favourite moment for me was sitting outside the Williams motorhome back in the day before they were they were kind of three-story uh, hotel complexes this is a, just a coach with an awning um, parked on the grass in in the in the paddock behind the paddock at Silstone as the sun went down on a beautiful um, 1994 July day with the trophy on the table just in front of him and me on the other side just signing autographs and him just supping on his tea and he was just a big wide grin on his on both of our faces um, and uh, so we had some lovely times. One of my most enduring memories of him was 2012 when Pastor Maldonado won for the team. And of course, we were celebrating his 70th the same weekend and the, the pure joy within the team. Um, that was contrasted by the horror of the fire. But then to see the team pull together and indeed other members of the paddock go down and put the fire out. It was just such an emotionally charged weekend, but I'll never forget it. No, I, I mean, it clearly, uh, you know, it was the best birthday present you could ever have got. Not the fire, but the, the race win. Yeah, a lot happened to Williams that weekend, didn't it? He delighted in everything that Formula One could offer or motorsport could offer. He loved the cars. He loved the speed. 
And the irony for me was that he hated paying drivers. He thought the money was wasted. It could have gone on the car. And, <laughs> well, and he's right. him and Ginny, well, <laughs> I, I, would, I, would, I would take a different view, actually, <laughs> but uh, I would say we're worth our weight in gold. But um, him and Ginny, you know, they, they had the, 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 the opinion that drivers are just employees. Well, I, I, I would take issue with him on that. So whilst on one hand, on the one hand, he would kind of slightly uh, denigrate or downgrade the drivers as, as, as being important, he absolutely was in awe of drivers. He completely stood in awe of every single driver he had driving for him. He would have loved to have been a racing driver. Like all of those guys, they would have, they were, they would have loved to actually have been in their car driving it. Who wouldn't? You know, like Jack Brabham built and, and won in his own cars, that and, and Bruce McLaren, that's probably you know, about as close as you can get to, to, to heaven in, in our sport. But Frank was slightly, sadly denied that, that ability. So Damon, just in summary, what have you lost from a personal point of view? And what has the sport lost with the passing of Frank Williams? Well, I don't think it's a loss. I think, you know, you have to look at it, what Frank brought to the, the pot of our sport was a story of a man who started with nothing and through sheer guts and determination built a, a, a world-beating team with a, with a record that will stand in the record books uh, and is still there today as one of the most successful Formula One teams of all time. And also his, his, his record as a human being, you know, his tenacity and his wiliness and, and all the things, his attributes that... Um, made him an extraordinary person. Um, so that's part of the, the F1 story. He's left us with that. And, you know, we only get one, one go at this, you know, one span. And, and, and I think he, he persisted or um, survived for a, an extraordinary amount of time against all the odds. And sadly, sooner or later, it was, it was going to overwhelm him. But, I mean, he, he lived a full life and, um, and he, he lived to see his grandchildren as well. And I think one of the lovely stories that um, Claire told was how happy he was to go to go to um, his grandchildren's shows. I mean, he seemed to be enjoying it, Claire said, as much as the children. So that's a rather lovely thought, isn't it? That he was, uh, he was delighting in, in his new life as a granddad. Oh, so true. I mean, a family man to the very end. And, and I think that's part of his legacy, isn't it? That the F1 family as a whole, and I'm talking about the fans, I'm talking about the, the core in the paddock and, and every supporter of the sport. There wasn't anyone who didn't love Williams. I mean, that's a real testament to him, Claire, and the team as a whole, that even if they weren't your first choice team, they'd definitely be your second. But they were just loved universally, still are. And I think also they're quintessentially British, um, Natalie. You know, so if you're looking for a, a team, Team GB, I think that more than perhaps even McLaren, I would say that uh, that Williams was Team GB. I mean, um, you know, they they I, I compared Frank to to Enzo. You know, in Italy they've got Enzo Ferrari, someone who was as dedicated to his cars and, and racing as Frank was. But uh, I would say Frank w- was comparable uh, in in that way, and I found the member of of an eponymous team, which the name will live on. I mean, obviously there were moments when also he was, he was the enemy, you know, he was not widely loved by the British fans because when, when Nigel left, you know, people were pretty cross with, with Frank. And when I left as well, people were slightly annoyed with him, but he did what he needed to do to keep the team going. And um, when they could, if they were, were able to, they, he, he would have loved to have had a British driver winning in his car. When we had Renault, uh, the deal was Prost won basically, 
um, but he 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 always got a little bit of a, a wry uh, kind of uh, kick from seeing me win, <laughs> especially when it was supposed to be Renault's fiftieth Grand Prix victory or something like that, and I won the race, and and they were going to they were supposed to present it to Alan Prost, but Frank was tickled pink that I'd won it. <laughs> Well, Damon, it's it's wonderful to hear from you. So thank you. And um, it is indeed a, a very sad time for Formula One. Um, but it's it's great to hear the positivity with which you talk about him and clearly the legacy that, that he has in Formula One and for his friends and everyone beyond the sport as well. So thank you so much for sharing those memories with us. Oh, great to hear from Damon. And do you know what, Pinks? I completely bought into the whole Frank Williams story. The perseverance of that man throughout his life was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? How, you know, with no money, he decided he wanted to go racing and he hooked up with his mate Piers Courage. And in 1969, they made the dream happen, financed by Piers. His mate was then killed at Zandvoort. Piers was then killed the following year. And yet Frank said, I'm going to keep going. I've got no money. I'm going to keep going and keep going. He did. He then ran out of options in 77 and sold the team to Walter Wolf. And yet he started again with Patrick Head with Williams Grand Prix engineering the following season and away they went. And then he has this car accident just as he's got all of his ducks in a row. They've got Honda power uh, coming good. They've got a a rostrum of sponsors that are fantastic. And then at the start of 1986, he's paralyzed and yet he keeps going and he has more success after that accident than he'd had before it. It's just, you know, Pinks, we all have days when you think this is harder than I was expecting. The current coming against me was stronger than I was expecting. Well, just think of Frank, just think of Frank and it'll help you through. Unbelievable. The absolute epitome of fighting adversity, tenacity, passion, you know. And I mean, I am too young to remember him before his accident, but I was always just blown away by his commitment to the team to come to every race. It cannot have been easy to travel. And as we've touched upon, anyone that had the the pleasure, the honour of being able to have a bit of interaction with him, he was very funny, you know, you hung on his every word because it wasn't easy for him to speak. You had to really kind of tune in and to hear him. But when you did, it was gold. And um, yeah, I feel very lucky to have met him. I've had lovely conversations with Claire about him. You know, as you say, massive amounts of tragedy in his life. Losing Ginny, who was the backbone of the family, must have been so full of trauma for all of them. And yet they still pull through. And losing Senna, and Claire has said as well that that really affected him because Senna was his hero and to have him drive for the team and then only months later lose his life uh, would have been another massive blow. But this is a guy that just kept getting back up and fighting against the odds. And as you say, an inspiration to so many who may want to throw the towel in just to never to do so. Nine constructors' titles, seven drivers' titles and 114 wins. That's a legacy. But beyond the stats, there's just something, something so very special about the Williams team. And that was created by that man. So very special. And let's talk now to a man who knew Frank Williams. And he's now the CEO of the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. It's Martin Whitaker. We'll come on to all things Jeddah in a moment. 
But can we start just by getting your thoughts and memories on the great man, Frank Williams? Uh, well, listen, I mean, what do you have to say about him? I mean, what a lovely man he was. Would you believe it? Yesterday, I've been trying to get hold of him on the phone in the last couple of weeks um, because we, uh, we, I was going to write a forward for a coffee table book that we're writing here, uh, which we're going to have released after the Grand Prix. But just memories of him, just a lovely man. I mean, I was lucky to know him before his accident and obviously afterwards. I think he was always so accommodating. He always seemed to have time for you. I think people like myself, I'm sure you two were the same, would make time to go and find him in the paddock. Even if you didn't really have anything to say to him, you just, it was nice, you knew he was there. It was almost like Uncle Frank. And so it was just nice to go and shake his hand and spend some time, crouch down by the wheelchair and have a few words with him. He'd wave his arms around. And it was just, I don't know, you could just share moments with him. And I think it was, I mean, in a way, I think people like us were extremely privileged to have known him. Yes, just on that, how much of a legacy has he got on the sport? I mean, how much of a role has he played in the development of it? And are we ever likely to see someone of his kind again? I suppose not, if we're, if we're frank. It's not just Sir Frank himself. It was the way he, he built the team. I think, in a sense, he built the team just out of a pure love of the sport, that sort of fervent enthusiasm for going motor racing in a time when motor racing was so different back in that sort of era of the, the sort of the late 60s and early 70s. And think of the people that he's worked with, not just those that sat in the car, but the people that worked in the sport and, and who either applied their trade or, or learnt their trade at Williams and with Frank. And whether it was when he ran the, ran the team out of a, a telephone box in Didcot or you know, the back of his van, he saw some great times. He saw some really bad times. He had times when he had no money. He had times when he had great sponsors. He epitomized everything that was good, I think, about the, the generation that all of us have come to love. And, and working with the drivers that he worked with and the, the technical people, just extraordinary. Am I right in thinking that you're going to be honouring Williams this weekend? Are we even going to see one of their cars running? You're actually going to see two. We're actually speaking with um, Stefano and his team at the moment. We had a meeting actually this morning. We've given them some ideas. We're working with, uh, with Alex Molina and, and the team that are already here on the ground to see what we can do to honour Frank. But yes, you're right. We, there was a, a Williams FW07, uh, the number four chassis, uh, that's been residing in a, in a garage in Riyadh for the best part of 30 years without turning a wheel. And we decided uh, back in May, June time to uh, restore that car. And so we literally took it apart in the garage in, in Riyadh and shipped it back to uh, Chris Meller's operation in, uh, in Bakewell in Derbyshire, MEM. And Chris is well known not only for his, for his rally cars, but it has for being a really fabulous engineer. And Chris has completely stripped the car down rebuilt it in the most beautiful way the restoration is quite superb the car was actually flown back here again in bits uh two days ago and so they've been working on it and they fired it up again this morning uh they're due to run it on the runway i think tomorrow uh and then we will be running it during the grand prix weekend so uh and the nice thing is we'll have a number of drivers driving it i spoke to damon last night i think damon's going to be one of the guys who will drive it so it'll be great to see damon driving williams again we also will have uh, the sports minister, uh, Prince Abdulaziz, will also be driving the car. 
Prince Abdulaziz is, is he knows his way around a racing car. He's uh, raced at Le Mans. He's raced at uh, Spa 24 hours. He won the Porsche Championship here in the Middle East a couple of years running. And of course, perhaps the icing on the cake is that Alan Jones will be here as well. Um, so Alan will be with us for the race weekend, as you'd like, a, a bit of an ambassador for the car. And yes, I mean, sadly, the events of yesterday have added a, a, another sort of poignancy to the whole affair. But the nice thing is we'll be, we'll be able to commemorate Frank's life not only with the car on the track, but also working on the uh, tribute to Frank on the grid on, on the Sunday. But how nice will it be to see this car and another one, uh, the chassis number one, uh, which was built in 1979, seeing both those cars circulating around the track during the course of the Grand Prix weekend. And the reason I mentioned the, the coffee table book is because we've got some stunning images of the car being restored. And of course, that'll culminate in it running. And, and that's where it's so sad. I was literally yesterday morning starting to pen a forward to the book from frank oh it's giving me goosebumps yeah and now let's look forward to this race weekend because we're all very excited about coming out there and uh for the listeners there is actually a map of the track behind you and it looks phenomenal just how fast is it because i'm hearing all these rumors can we expect the fastest street circuit ever we certainly can it's extremely fast the track is uh, just over six kilometers in length it's very narrow at its narrowest point you can literally it's what less than 10 meters between one track and the other um and you'll see that when you get here um the other unique feature of course is that it's right on the shores of the red sea so it's not even a stone's throw from the red sea it's literally a lob from the red sea but yes, to get back to the question, it, it is very fast. We think that the average speed will be in excess of 250 kilometers an hour. It's, I think, particularly unforgiving. I think uh, one mistake here, like, like many street circuits, but one mistake here and you're going to be in the wall. The top speed, I imagine, will be something in the region of 320, 330 kilometers an hour going into the final corner, which is turn 27, 27 corners. And some unique features on the track. We have uh, one of the, the, the premium hospitality uh, suites, for example, actually straddle both tracks. So you're going under it one way and you're coming back under it the other way as you return back to the start-finish line. It'll be extremely quick. Uh, as I've said, very demanding, fast with some, with some challenging corners, an interesting parabolic corner at turn 13. And of course, all, all under lights. We will start the race at 8.30 here, which will be, I think, 5.30 in the UK. 670 must-go lights all around the circuit. And you cannot believe how impressive this circuit looks at night. It's when you get here and you physically see the circuit and how the magnitude of it and the scale of it is just enormous. And, and all this, when you have to realise that it's actually a temporary circuit. I find you have to pinch yourself and just remind yourself this is actually a temporary circuit, not a permanent circuit. Now, look, when did you finish it, Martin? There's been a lot of sort of chat about it's all uh, been very last minute. When, when, did, when did the circuit get finished? Well, I think probably let's turn the question around. First of all, Tom, they, we started building it in the first week of May. I can't think of any other circuit that's been built in uh, as little time as that. I, I think we, we, we managed to get a Guinness Book of Records for our recent construction of a Lego car. Um, full-size Lego car. I think we're probably going to get a Guinness Book of Records certificate for the for the fastest building or construction of a Formula One circuit. But yeah, so it started in May. Um, it is now finished. 
the track is is 100% finished. Michael Massey was with us. Well, he's here with us now. He arrived yesterday. Uh, he's obviously been with us on a number of occasions during the last few months. And I, I have to say, Michael and his team have been fantastic, as have as have the team at Biggin Hill with with Ross Braun and Andrew Bibby and Richard Springett and Steve Nielsen. Um, they've been totally supported throughout the whole piece. We've had weekly meetings with them. I think the important thing from our side is we've always been incredibly transparent with them. We've been completely honest about where we are. If we've had problems, we said, look, we've got problems. I think they genuinely appreciated that. So they shared the, the difficulties, they shared the challenges with us, and they've been extraordinarily supportive. But yep, we're ready to go. I can understand that people would have had doubts, naturally, um, especially when, as I said earlier on, when you see the size of the place. Uh, but yeah, we're ready to go. I mean, listen, there's, there's clearly there's things still being put up right now. The, the gantries are going up, sports signage are in doing all the, all the signage, uh, road grip are in doing the, the, the track markings. The teams are now in furnishing the garages. And it's beginning to feel like a real racing track. Now, you, you know the thing yourself. You go to a racetrack anywhere else in the world, it's only really in the last week that it, it starts to come together anyway. The great thing is we've got a, a fantastic team here, a majority of them being young people. 40% of them, by the way, are, uh, are female, which is really encouraging. It's a great, vibrant team. And look, sure, we're going to make mistakes and sure, we're not going to get everything right, but that's the way it is. Uh, but the nice thing is they're, they're fervently passionate and proud that they've got a Formula One Grand Prix on the on the streets of Jeddah. Well, I was going to ask that. What is the mood like over there? What's the anticipation that's building to receive the world of Formula One to the to the shores of the Red Sea? First of all, Natalie, I mean the Saudis love their cars, and also don't forget, seventy five percent of the population here are under the age of thirty five. There's a huge appetite for motorsport here in the country, and let's face it, as we all know, there's there's no bigger platform and no bigger showcase or shop window for, for motorsport than a Formula One event. And with the countless millions, if not hundreds of millions of people who are going to watch the race in Saudi uh, this coming weekend, frightening to say this coming weekend, um, <laughs> it's going to be extraordinary to see so many people here. And, and most importantly, the pride that the local people have in this race. This is a vibrant society. The young people here are no different from the people that we have in Europe and around the world. They are absolutely fascinated in what, what's going on. They are just embracing this in the most extraordinary fashion. So I think we're going to see not only great support this year, but an increasing level of support in the years to come. And of course, don't forget, you know, our next race is in March. Knowing the track as you do and being a keen follower of the sport as you are, who's going to win it Ooh. on Sunday? I tell you, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I think Max is going to love the speed and I think Lewis is going to love the speed. I think Lewis is going to really, really love the challenge of this track. The grip level is extraordinarily high, by the way. Uh, we believe so with the, the two operations in sense of, of construction, the, the company that have constructed, the main lead contractors, a company called Unimac, a Saudi company, driven obviously with the architects at Tilka. They've constructed a track that has amazing grip so I think some of the highest grip levels that we're going to see on a Formula One circuit. And that was, a, that was an important consideration for us because obviously the last thing you need is a, is a slippery surface. The good thing is we're right on the coast, so our dust levels will not be as, as much as they would be perhaps on a, on, a, on a circuit that was further inland. But yeah, to get back to the question, I think, I think everybody's just going to love the, the opportunity to, to race here. Who's going to win? Oh, I really don't know. 
Well, the great news for us is it's not long until we find out. So just to remind you, it's Max Verstappen who leads the championship by eight points. And for him to take his first world title in Saudi Arabia, he would have to win the race and Lewis would have to finish sixth or lower. Unlikely, not impossible. What do you reckon, Tom? Well, I think Lewis has got a rocket ship, is what I, it's, it's what I think, Pinks. He's going to be putting that Sao Paulo spec power unit back into the car for this race. So as long as he finishes, I think he'll do enough to keep the championship alive until Abu Dhabi. I sense, speaking to Martin, that there might be a bit of jeopardy, a very narrow track, very high speed. You know, we're, we're going to, as you say, we haven't got long to find out, but I'm starting to feel nervous just about the whole championship fight. Now, in two weeks time, we will know who has won the 2021 World Championship and how those guys deal with the pressure and the expectation on their shoulders is is something else. Uh, I know I couldn't do it. Well, funny you should say that, Tom, because we have now got a man coming on the show who can offer us a unique insight into just that. His name is Ricardo, Dr. Ricardo Ceccarelli, and he founded the company Formula Medicine, specialising working with racing drivers. Delighted for you to join us and just tell us at this stage of the season, how much of the driver's preparation is mental versus physical? I would say to be not too dramatic, but I would say 99% mental and 1% physical, I would say, because they are physically, they are so fit and they, they don't need anything extra. Now it's just to manage the, the psychological pressure. And uh, that's, in my opinion, the most important things. But I would like to add, it's not only Max and Lewis. Uh, you know, it's also the team, the strategy, because we saw that... Uh, the team can be also the key point for a result in negative and in positive terms. And we saw already during the season. So it's important all the teamwork, not only the drivers. So Ricardo, if you were working with Lewis or Max coming into these races, what would you be saying to them now? Well, I would say, first of all, they are two different person. So we have to respect also how they are. Uh, Lewis has uh, an advantage that has won already seven world championships. And that's obviously make him more used to this kind of pressure. But at the same time, not many times he faced uh, a so tough competition. And so, especially in the last year, so for him can be a pressure, I, I would say, similar to Djokovic. Did you see in the tennis, Djokovic, he could win the match of the life uh, to win four slam and to be uh, the first one to arrive to 21 slam. And he failed for the excessive pressure. So for me, Lewis is a bit in the condition of uh, Djokovic. A lot of pressure because that can be the last race of his life. Eight-time world championship is a record that no one will beat probably for, for age. On the other side, obviously, Max uh, uh, is willing uh, to win because it can be the first championship. But at the same time, probably uh, I go against the, what people think. Probably he has less pressure because he's young. He has many other opportunities in the future. 
So maybe the pressure is less in Max, in my, in my opinion. It's more Lewis that in, in the moment has everything to lose. And there is another point which people, obviously, uh, when we talk about these two drivers, first of all, big respect because what they are doing is amazing. I have a huge respect for them, but in my opinion, mentally, Max is a little bit stronger compared to Lewis. Max is uh, that kind of character that is only focused on himself. He has a huge self-confidence. Lewis is looking for support, external support. Is that kind of person you see in the team radio, how much he talks, he's looking for security, he's, he's asking, but the strategy is correct. Max is never doing this. Or he's trying to have the support of the people, of the, of the fans you saw with the Brazilian flag or in UK's. And he has a physio which is always with him, never jumping one meter. No one knows who is the physio of Max. So Lewis, the one that needs to create a familiar environment that protects him. Max is the kind of driver that he doesn't need anyone around him. He needs himself. Do you think, though, in fairness to Lewis, he's much more exposed than Max? I mean, he's a global superstar who comes in for criticism and praise. He's had to cope with a lot more than Max externally from the sport. When I started to work with the drivers, after some years, I was dividing the drivers in uh, two categories. Extreme, the extreme, uh, I call the sponge and the waterproof. So the sponge can be affected by negative situation around him. Waterproof means nothing is going inside. A classic example of a, a extreme waterproof driver is Raikkonen. Raikkonen, nothing is affecting the criticism, the journalist, the, the nothing. It just uh, completely waterproof, nothing is getting inside, nothing is affecting on his performance, okay? Max is a little bit similar to this example because uh, he can be affected by many things outside the accident, the criticism, is always the same, is always Max and nothing is affecting him. Lewis is a little bit more sponge, he needs to feel the positive, the people that likes him, that uh, encourage him. Uh, he is more social, is more, I don't say one is better, one is, is negative. I, I don't say it's not a judgment, it's uh, just two different character. Ricardo, have you had Lewis or Max to your, what is it, your mental gym in, in Via Reggio? Um, I never had the chance to work with Lewis and uh, um, I, I have been the doctor in, uh, in Toro Rosso in uh, Red Bull, so I know Max very well. We never did this kind of work with Max because, as I told you, he doesn't need. There are some drivers you don't need to touch. Uh, for example, he remembered me a lot. Uh, if I had to compare Max, I can compare to Kubica. And um, because they are that kind of driver, they have a huge self-confidence. Uh, they know what to do. And uh, uh, we can work with them only if they need, if they ask, if they show some weakness, 
but uh, if they don't show weakness, don't touch. I think you told me in the past that you've worked with 76 Formula One drivers. Now they are 80. 80. There we are. I haven't spoken to you for too long. But uh, of the 80, who has been the most impressive for you? For me, it was Kubica. Kubica and now Max. Uh, they are the one that, uh, as I told you, they need less my support. Just only when they are young, just only to learn, just don't do mistakes, okay? Just don't do mistakes in the physical training, in the nutrition, but that they become completely independent and uh, it means that they know exactly what they need and what they want to do. For us, one of the most important things, especially we see, you know, we see like 200 drivers every year here in the mental gym from kids seven years old. And uh, uh, we have also some drivers from uh, Beijing, you know, the race Beijing, uh, Paris, and they are 77 years old. So we have from seven to 77. Honestly, no kidding. And, uh, and uh, when you see many young drivers, you see a lot of problems and that's why someone is not becoming professional. One of the most important points is the self-awareness. Self-awareness is the corner point. Who is going to develop a huge self-awareness is going to improve. All the drivers that I met in the past, uh, Senna, uh, Schumacher, they had this so huge self-awareness. They knew how they were, and they knew exactly where they could improve, and they were always focused to see where they could improve. So a big, big self-awareness. That means I can manage what I know. So if I know myself, I can better manage myself. So self-awareness is the most important thing we evaluate in a young driver, and is the one that we try to stimulate. If I have to say about Max and Lewis, they have obviously huge self-awareness. And um, I was impressed for me by Kubica and Max because as, even if they were super young, they have a self-awareness like a 30 years old person. When Max was coming in uh, Toro Rosso, was the doctor of Toro Rosso, he was only 17. He was acting like a 30 years old person. No problem, no. He knew already what he needed. He knew how to manage himself. So for me, yeah, I would say for sure Kubis and Max, they are the one that most impressed me in the past. And in your opinion, Ricardo, is that nature or nurture? Do you think that Max was taught that by his parents or do you think it's just in his DNA? DNA, for me, is DNA. Obviously, the education is important, but the education can modify a bit, but the DNA is like the fundamental of a, of a building. If, uh, if there is no strong DNA, you cannot build up a, a, a high building. So DNA is fundamental. That's why we do also scouting in our facility, because when they are 12, 13, 14, we can see immediately who has the DNA to become a top driver. We don't judge the talent, obviously. So we leave to judge the talent to someone else. But the DNA, we can see when they are already 12, 13. This is fascinating. Isn't it just? Love it. I just love it because, you know, in a sport where the margins are so small, someone like Ricardo can make all the difference, can't you? I mean, you you can help make a champion. Yeah, sure. Sure. He's, um, he's, 
what is important is, is this in our work. Uh, as I told you, we see so many young drivers, so many go-kart drivers. And uh, what we try to transmit there is like an education. So be focused on yourself develop your self-awareness, be critical with yourself. As soon as you jump out of a go-kart, of a car, first of all, ask to you, what I did wrong? What can I improve on myself? And this is the best approach. Uh, like um, the top driver, normally when I talk with the engineer, they, the top driver, they jump out of the car and they can say, uh, I did a mistake, I lost two, sec- two tenths of a second in corner five but the car is, is too much uh, understeering, for example. So they are able to split car and their uh, mistakes. This is the mentality of the top driver. So Ricardo, Natalie says you can help make a champion. Do you think you have made a champion in Max Verstappen? Who's your money on, Lewis or Max? In my opinion, in this moment, as I told you, um, is um, Max probably is like Medved and uh, Lewis is like Djokovic. So Lewis can be the legend. So he can have even more pressure than Max. But probably in this moment, Mercedes has a little bit something more. So I think it will be very tight, difficult to say. I hope they will arrive at the last race with the same points. So we can see like uh, uh, the world championship, like, uh, written by Hitchcock that uh, is, uh, will be a thriller until the last corner. I hope in this and then who is going to win deserve because they are two top, top champions. And I have a lot of respect for them. And we, Ricardo, have a lot of respect for you. That is such a brilliant insight. Thank you so much. Yeah, Ricardo, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. And look forward to seeing you out there in Saudi. Thanks to you. Thank you. Well, Tom, I think you could probably apply the sponge versus waterproof analogy to anyone in life, don't you? Oh, 100%. But he's right because it's it, it's shades of grey. I think you can be sponge-like and on occasions Teflon. Oh, it's just, I found that a really, really interesting chat with Ricardo. He knows racing drivers. He's been working with them for 30 years. He's had, as he said, 80 Formula One drivers through his doors. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Ricardo, what a legend. Okay, so not long now. You're off tomorrow. I'm on Wednesday, jetting off to Jeddah. (sighs) I'll see you there. Can't wait. See you there, Pinks. I mean, I'll say it again. The World Championship is about to be decided and we're going to be there on site to witness it. Too close to call. Sponge, waterproof, whatever. It's going to be a great race. F1 Nation is a podcast produced by Formula One in association with Audio Boom Studios.